Milk minute, milk minute, milk minute, yeah. This is Maureen Farrell and Heather O'Neill, and this is the Milk Minute. We're midwives and lactation professionals, bringing you the most up-to-date evidence for all things lactation, so you can feel more confident about feeding your baby, body positivity, relationships, and mental health. Plus, we laugh a little or a lot along the way. So join us for another episode. Hi, welcome. We're back on the Milk Minute podcast. We're back, but we're not alone. No, we have an interview today, and I'm so excited about this. Actually, it's amazing. Yeah, I am so excited to learn more about what it means to be intersex, as well as what it means to induce lactation for yes. anyone. I mean, literally, <laughs> that's just incredible on any level for any person. Yeah, and we thought it was a really important topic to tackle now because we have a lot of people considering lactation um, that were not considering it before. So today we are interviewing an amazing person with a firsthand account about inducing lactation twice. Uh, but first, let's go in and thank some patrons and have our little question moment. Okay, I'll start with the first patron. Thank you. I just wanted to thank Karen H. from West Virginia, who happens to be my mom, <laughs> because she was our first patron and she is still giving us a monthly contribution every single month for actually, is it our two year anniversary? It, it's like real Hold close. On, let me look. Gosh, I am a terrible at anniversaries. I don't even celebrate my own like marriage anniversary. Next week is oh our two-year podcast oh, birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. To thank us. you. Happy birthday to <laughs> us. So thank you, Mom. Also, thank you, Rose from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Katie from Spirit Lake, Iowa. Oh, I'm so happy to welcome you all into our little Patreon family. It's great. We enjoy yeah. it in there. If you feel like you want to ask us direct questions, that's the best mm -hmm. way to do it through Patreon. It's, yeah, it's also where I post like my least filtered comments and thoughts yeah in case you feel like you would like more more candidness more maureen <laughs> <laughs> when i'm just like you know what this is in this is an inside thought that i shouldn't voice but here i'm just gonna say it on patreon <laughs> i'm just gonna say it yeah basically that's the best way to get behind the behind the scenes with us <laughs> but let's start with a question today yes so um if you didn't know we have a tiktok account uh, and we get a lot of questions on there. And I was like, wait a second, we haven't pulled any questions from here. So let's let's do one. And also, if you haven't checked out the TikTok, I got to give all the props to Maureen. For every one TikTok I do, <laughs> she does about 30. <laughs> and she's absolutely crushing it on that platform. And I enjoy watching her videos. And oh, um, I you. know you will, too. So please go check out our TikTok. And, you know, I'll just keep trying to hang in there and be relevant <laughs> one in 30 times. I really don't mind your level of contribution. I'm just happy that you contribute at all. Ba it's hey, very thanks. Nice. Yeah. I'm doing my best. It's, it's okay. I honestly think too, like whatever, something about that platform works for my brain. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm just going with it for uh, now. As Heidi always says, just try your best, mom. <laughs> just try your best, mom. <laughs> all of you out there. <laughs> okay. Anyway, our question of the day is from a TikTok handle, Shante Littlefeather. And they ask, what time is the prolactin hormone the highest um and we wanted to quick shout out our awesome episode 55 uh because we really talk about this in detail then but the short answer is 
It's about four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Which is why you wake up with giant boobies. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Just quick reminder, prolactin is a hormone that's involved in sleep. So um, it's really affected by your sleep. And if you have a sleep cycle that is uh, opposite of what we would expect to be a normal circadian rhythm, then 4 a.m. is not going to be your highest prolactin production. But for those who sleep mostly in the nighttime hours, it's it's somewhere between like 2 and 7 in the morning. Yeah. And here's a little spoiler alert in case you don't have time to immediately go to episode 55 and learn all about that. Prolactin is an ancient hormone from pre- mammalian milk making you know it's crazy just like everything else mammals were like we're gonna do something different with what we have yeah mammals were late to the game so but prolactin was there before milk yeah and that's why it's so closely tied to sleep because we were sleeping before we were lactating and confusing then that we call it prolactin (laughs) yes but anyway um Let's get into our episode, though. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today. Um, So I met this person on TikTok because I saw one of her videos and I was like, I got to know more, followed her immediately, binged like, you know, 50 videos of hers. So I'm going to introduce you here today to Chrissy Fleischman. She is from Maryland in the United States. Uh, She lives there with her husband of 15 years and is a full-time mom to her two sons, and she works at home part-time as an administrative professional when they sleep, which, kudos, I know how that feels. That is hard. Yeah, super hard. (laughs) Um, She's also a former La Leche League leader of five years and an intersex advocate. And on TikTok, you can find her at Oceans of Hope. That's so awesome. I can't wait to get to know Chrissy and ask her all the many, many questions that I have, and I'm sure you have too. Yes. We're so excited to learn, and I hope that the information we get today from Chrissy can really help you guys broaden your um, just your general thoughts about lactation and how that works. All right, it's Maureen here, and I want to tell you that I have finally set up a link so you can instantly book virtual lactation consults with me. Thank the Lord. (laughs) I know, Heather. It took me a long time to take the leap from in-person visits to virtual, but I did it. You're going to love it. I love doing virtual consults. They are the best. It serves more people. I'm so glad you took the plunge. Thank you. And if you guys out there want to book some time with me, you can go to highlandbirthsupport.com and then click on my lactation services tab. Is that H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I will see you on Zoom, everybody. Welcome, Chrissy. We're so excited to have you on the Milk Minute podcast. I've been really looking forward to this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, this is a topic that is close to my heart and I love talking about. So thank you. Yeah, we're so excited. Um, So you just had your second baby. Congratulations. How old is he now? Thank you. He turned four months yesterday. Ah, So good. Yes. I love that four month age because they're not really mobile yet and they're 
extra chunky and super cute they and they're like socially no smiling everywhere <laughs> yes but they're not like quite dangerous yet correct he just rolled over so i was like oh okay Ooh. now we need to get the baby gates like it's happening <laughs> yeah fun fact like every time you go to your four-month pediatric visit they're like just so you know the most falls and emergencies we have are with four-month-olds because people don't mm. think they're going to move and then all of a sudden they move out of nowhere yeah i can i understand that yes <laughs> okay well, so how, yeah oh go ahead Maureen. Oh, how are you doing postpartum first before we get into all this sure um so it's my second child and i think many people have a different experience the second time around you know a little bit more you're maybe not as freaked out by the smallest things so it's definitely a different that way i'm older as well so <laughs> bending over to do diaper changes and things like that i'm like oh man okay i'm older my body's feeling that and then the most the biggest difference or the thing that has made this experience easier is he is a sleeper my first was not a sleeper <sighs> and this um kid will sleep so I, it's been really key to my postpartum like it's been it's been a breeze i'm sorry <laughs> oh, that sounds so love i'm so happy for yeah. you really it's it that's lovely trust me gift. we earned it with the first one <laughs> yeah <laughs> i get this a lot from clients who have a second baby that sleeps a lot and they're concerned about it because yes. the first one was so bad that they're like am i going to be able to keep up my supply i mean this baby's sleeping and i just go dude take the gifts that are given to you <laughs> yes let that child sleep as long as they're medically well let the baby sleep they're like oh thank you god <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So Chrissy, we have a lot of things to cover today. We're super excited about it. So why don't we start at the beginning? You've induced lactation twice for your two babies born via surrogacy. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about why you chose to use a surrogate? Sure, of course. So I have a medical condition called MRKH. It's on the intersex spectrum. Um, a newer name for intersex now is a difference in sex development. A lot of people like to use that one. It sounds less taboo, but it's intersex, same thing. Um, and with my condition, I do not have it. I was born without a uterus, without a cervix, and without an upper vaginal canal. Um, and so I'm literally not possible to be pregnant or have my own child. Now, Currently, there are uterus transplants taking place in some place, but that was after um, I would be eligible for it. So we had a couple different options for parenting, and we chose surrogacy. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Um, we, we chose oh. it specifically, too. Sorry, because I have ovaries. Um, and so some intersex people don't have ovaries or functioning ovaries. So even though I'm missing a uterus, I do have ovaries. And so a genetic okay. child was possible. Right. So you used a, I guess we'd call it a gestational surrogacy. Exactly. A gestational where, yeah. carrier, gestational surrogate. Yes. Okay. Do you, would you mind if we take a step back to the beginning? You mentioned that you were intersex on um, this spectrum of development. Can you tell us just like, I think a lot of our listeners, those are totally foreign terms to them. Definitely. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just like very simply... Uh, explain all of that for them? Sure. The best analogy that I like that's the easiest, I think, is a checklist analogy. And so when an embryo is created, there's a generally the the DNA, the chromosomes are already there. And so it's like, oh, there's a Y chromosome. That's the male checklist. Or, oh, there's not a Y chromosome. That's the female checklist. Um, and sometimes that can get mixed up because there are conditions where there's XXY or other things where the chromosomes are, are not binary. But even if the chrom chromosomes are binary, this checklist may miss some checks or there may mm -hmm. be checks in both columns. And so a lot of people think of intersex as checks in both columns 
columns, meaning male and female columns, but it can also mean no checks or lack uh, missing checks, I mean, or it can mean double checks. And so some places there are double checks. So someone who has two uteruses, uteri, whatever, would be considered on the intersex spectrum as well. So it's a checklist of sorts. So you could have checks in both columns, you could be missing checks, or you could have extra checks. Hopefully that makes sense. That's, oh, that's actually perfect. Okay. And I know, so I used to run a family planning clinic, and I had a patient who's also very open about her two uteri and her two cervixes. And when I went to do her pap smear, she said, oh, by the way, you're going to need two paps because I have two cervixes. And I was like, badass, yeah. (laughs) And she's like, and the one cervix hides behind the other one, so you're going to have to get up in there. And I was like, bless you for telling me. Like, I'm totally all about this. So. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that check- checklist analogy. I think that's perfect. Yeah. Thank you for explaining it that way. I think this is definitely something we don't have as much data as we'd like to on. And I I, I mean, something we're, we're learning about still, right? Definitely, for sure. Um, definitely learning about it. And a lot of times people are diagnosed with a condition, but aren't told that that's an intersex condition. Mm. And so many people, even with my condition, don't identify as intersex because their doctor did not tell them that, or um, they maybe don't feel comfortable with that. And they're missing out on a lot of community um, and, and interaction that way. So a lot of people are intersex and don't even know it. Right. And I think there's a lot of just general confusion over, you know, what intersex is versus gender identity and intersex. We're talking about a medical condition versus a personal identity. Definitely. I always say intersex can be independent of your sexual orientation. It could be uh, separate from your gender identity. It can be separate from your social presentation. So you can be trans and be intersex. Mm -hmm. You can be gay or straight or whatever and be intersex. It's completely independent. Mm-hmm. So how has this impacted your daily life, you know, and leading up to starting a family? You know, what did you have to overcome to like personally to even get to the point where you're like, all right, we want to start a family. This is the plan. Definitely. So at 14 is when I was diagnosed. Um, and unfortunately, I had a pretty tragic surgery that went wrong at 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it put me off of doctors for a long time. Um, once I found my now husband, I found him when I was 17. (laughs) So we've been together almost 20 years. I told him on our second date and he had a bunch of questions. I answered the questions and we sort of have never looked back since then. Um, I have had one other surgery while we were married for this, because even though I don't have a uterus, I had endometrial lining attached to my fallopian tube. Um, And so I was having bleeding monthly, even though I don't have a uterus. Um, It's like, God can be funny that way. Yeah. (laughs) My goodness. Rude. Um, Yeah. So they removed that. So I stopped having monthly pain that couldn't go anywhere. Um, And so he's been around for that surgery. He's been around for the whole um, surrogacy journey, you know, deciding to do surrogacy and then being blown away by the cost expectation for that. We had no idea. And it took us many years. I mean, we started in 2010 and our son, our first son was not born until 2015. And so I think Mm -hmm. surrogacy just takes a lot of planning, a lot of saving um, and a lot of luck. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it. When you were starting that planning process, uh, where where did you hear about induced lactation? How did you understand that was possible? Sure. So two things. One 
before my 2009 surgery, whenever I was a little bit older, um, they had put me on Depo-Provera, which is a birth control um, shot. And it's supposed to lessen your cycle or, you know, shut down your cycle. Mm -hmm. And a a small side effect of that sometimes is lactation. And I got that side effect. (laughs) And so um, (laughs) all of a sudden I was in the shower one day and I see white drop dripping out of my nipple and I was like what is happening <laughs> why body <Yes. laughs> I always say if it's weird it happens to me like that's just me <laughs> um and so I went to the doctor and they're like it's a side effect but let's run tests and it was fine so even since then whenever I ovulated I would drip milk and so I always no sort of was like my body wants to do this but I didn't hear about inducing lactation until we were starting on the surrogacy journey. And I literally Googled how to bond with a baby you didn't birth. Like I literally Googled that. Mm. And um, some of the things were baby wearing, attachment parenting, bed sharing, and another one was inducing lactation. And so I went to a very outdated website called asklenore.com. It's a very outdated <laughs> website, but the information was there. Um, and so then I, I went down a rabbit hole. I have ADHD. And so the hyper-focus took over yes. and I was all in it. <laughs> Isn't it nice when that happens like at a convenient time on something you actually want to learn about? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you found this outdated website. You began to make a plan. When did you actually start trying to induce lactation in the process of surrogacy? Okay, sure. So we um, made embryos and froze them for almost a year before we did the transfer. Once the transfer was successful and we had our first ultrasound, so that's like five weeks pregnant, Mm -hmm. um, you start the protocol. If you're using the most common protocol, which is the Norman Goldfarb protocol, it's the most intense sort of protocol, um, but it's the one that's most likely to yield results. And so that's the one I was following. So at five weeks, I started the birth control pill, skipping the placebo. um, And that went on until I was 30 weeks or we were 30 weeks pregnant. And so that's sort of an inactive phase where you're trying to mimic being pregnant, essentially. Um, And then... At 30 weeks is when the pumping started. Mm-hmm. How much pumping are we talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> pumping, everyone is different in what they choose to do. I am all in or nothing type of person. And so at 30 weeks, um, I was eager and started pumping. And it's to mimic a newborn baby. And so it's eight to yeah. 10 times in a 24-hour period, at least one overnight, but hopefully two overnight. And for 10 weeks without a baby to cuddle, it was not fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. That sounds like it would be disheartening at a lot of times. Yeah. How I looked at it, though, is it was my own pregnancy is how I almost looked at it. Like I didn't get those bodily changes. Um, and it was my I could put my focus into this and I was in charge of this. You don't have any control with surrogacy, I feel like. And it was something yeah. even though I didn't have control of it, because who knows what would happen. I felt more in control of it because I could do everything in my power to make it work. Well, you know what's interesting? We interviewed Abigail Tucker, the author of Mom Genes, about brain changes in postpartum parents, specifically moms who grow the baby. But also there were studies about the partners and the oxytocin rush that they get by performing activities of bonding with baby. And the more they do, the more it snowballs and the more their brains change. So actually you were innately doing that, but I think it it probably is exactly what you said it is. And the research would back that. I would love to see some more research for our intersex friends. That's interesting. Yeah. 
It was definitely it helped if I listened to the ultrasound heartbeat or if I looked at an ultrasound mm. picture. Um, it definitely helped. And it definitely really did connect um, me more to the pregnancy for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, the million dollar question is what pump did you use? <laughs> um, back then I used the Spectra. I had the S2. Um, I don't think I paid for the upgrade to get the battery one. Um, <laughs> but I was working full time in an office who had a lactation room. So it was really easy. They mm -hmm. were super supportive because there's no coverage legally pre-birth for pumping times. Mm. That's not usually something the lawmakers thought of. And so yeah. <laughs> thankfully, they were super understanding. And um, I didn't have another child to take care of while I was doing that pumping. So it was definitely easier the first time around. Yeah, I can see that. And there's, have you heard of the Pump Act, which just passed the House and they're trying to get it to pass the Senate now? Oh, no, I haven't heard that. Okay, well, we'll link it in the show notes for anybody that's interested. But there are some new legislative pushes to protect pumping parents. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure specifically that pre-birth is protected in there, but it should be. So if we can even get that one in the door, then we can modify it. Getting yeah. it in the door is the hardest part. And it did pass the House. So fingers crossed. I'm very hopeful there. That's we'll, awesome. We'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. All right. So we're pumping around the clock really exhausting. Did you like use different medications at this time? I know you used birth control first. Did you switch to something else? Yes. So at the 30 week mark, you stop the birth control and then you start a medication called domperidone or motilum. Okay. Um, and it's uh, controversial. It shouldn't be, yeah. but it is. Um, and it's back then you could still get it in the States through a compounding pharmacy, but it was about a dollar mm. a pill and I needed eight pills a day. So um, I got it from overseas, which is how everyone gets it now, and was able to take it that way. I did have quite a bit of side effects from it. Not awful side effects, the weight gain, headaches, things like that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't dangerous side effects by any means. Right. They were manageable for yes. you in some way? Yep. Yeah. Fun fact, um, because I'm a certified nurse midwife, when I've tried to order it from Canada, because I'm a midwife, they have me pegged. And they're like, we know you're not going to use this for its intended purpose. You know, we're Canadians. We're smart. We know that you're going to use this for lactation. And I'm just over here like, it wouldn't be me. I'm just, it's definitely for a GI thing. Trust maybe, me. Maybe you just need to like become BFFs with a gastroenterologist or something. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Domperidone is an off-label use, but, yeah. you know, every single lactation medication that we use basically is an is off I, I mean, use. we just got a question in our Facebook group about it today where somebody was using not Reglan, but like an analogous medication. They were like, my supply upped. What happened? Fun yeah, fact. That, that's what <laughs> happened. It's a side effect of a lot of medications. And I really hope to see more like study about it so we can help people because some of them are really effective. <laughs> yeah. One of these days. <laughs> God. Every episode. I feel like a broken record. <laughs> I know. We need more studies about this, this, and this. <laughs> well, you know, I, if you were willing to share a personal moment with us, um, what was it like when you saw milk come out of you for the first time? What was going through your head? So the first time I, it intentionally came out, I guess you could yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, intentionally. Uh, yeah. Like, like it's possible. <laughs> like my body is finally doing something I'm asking it to do. Uh, that first day I got drops the first time I pumped and then did not get anything the rest of that day. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that's all that was in there that day. But the next day I made an ounce total in the 24 Whoa. hours. In the 24 what? hours. So milliliters by milliliters, it added up to an ounce. 
Um, and by the end of the 10 weeks, I was up to 11 ounces a, a day. Um, and I was really excited by that. I knew I would have to supplement. Um, most people who have never been pregnant before have to supplement some. Um, but I was really proud of my body. I really was. Uh, yeah, that was amazing. I almost describe it as sort of a healing thing. Like I used to feel like maybe my body was broken. It can't do what it's meant to do, Mm. you know, grow a baby. Um, And by doing this, I used to say like, I can't grow him inside of my body, but maybe I can help him grow outside of my body. And so it was really healing for me to be able to do that for sure. That's super sweet. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think a lot of people understand that breast milk is made from your blood and we basically melt our bodies and turn it into milk. So <laughs> you are giving your son part of you every day. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I love that. That's well, awesome. We hit on the hopeful part, but were there points in that process, especially the first time that you were like, screw this, I'm throwing in the towel, we're done? Um, I don't think it was ever I'm throwing in the towel, I'm done. Definitely had to reevaluate what my goals were and what mm-hmm. like success looked like. Because you always have an idea of like, I'm going to exclusively breastfeed and latch and everything will be perfect. And but after a few weeks when I was not getting as much as maybe I thought I would get because I was dripping milk before, like my body should know how to do this. Um, and I wasn't getting as much as maybe I was hoping to get. I had to definitely reevaluate. Um, there was also a comment my husband make. I love him. And we talked about it afterwards and he's totally on board and like supportive. He just didn't understand how hurtful it was at the time. But he said, you don't have to ruin your body. Why are you going to ruin your breasts for this? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) I I, I see that. I can see how that was meant supportively and hit real different. It hit very differently and it was it yeah. was hard to talk through that. And he afterwards he's like, Oh man, I can totally see that. I was just <laughs> trying to say, like, you always go gung ho and everything. You always like go full in. I don't want you to do something you might regret or whatever. He was like, Why do this work when you don't have to, basically? Right. Um, so oh, yeah. <laughs> tough moment. That was a tough moment, I'm yes. sure. Yeah, we could probably dedicate an entire podcast episode to things not to say to your partner when they're working their tits (laughs) off just trying to you know maybe we should open submissions for that and just see how many we get. (laughs) Yeah, email us at milkminutepodcast at gmail dot com if you have um, something to contribute to the list of things partners should definitely not say. But also, we love them. Yes, (laughs) yes, this is meant in a helpful spirit. Um, so the second time then when, you know, you've, you've made it through the first baby, second baby, was it easier to do this again? Did you make milk faster the second time or more milk? Yeah. So with the first, um, we nursed for three years as well. Um, and so we Ah, nursed for a long time, even though I had to supplement because it doesn't have to be all or nothing is what I like to say. And so there was only a three year gap then he's six now. And so there's only a three year lactation gap when I started pumping again. And since we nursed for three years, I feel like that's a pretty long time. Your body knows what it's Mm -hmm. doing. Um, I got milk much faster. Um, I was up to, I think, seven ounces that first week within a week, a day. And I got up. That's really cool. Yeah. So it was much (laughs) faster. And I saw, like, I got engorged whenever the first time around, I never got engorged before. I never leaked milk the first time around, even if I was, hadn't pumped in a while. And this time around, I was getting the engorgement. 
Um, wow. And that's so by the end of 10 weeks, he was born at 40 weeks, two days. So 10 weeks and two days, I was up to 21 ounces a day. Oh, damn. Yeah. That's pretty much a full supply. Exactly. Well, just, yeah. yeah. I mean, just for some context for listeners that might not know this, if you're exclusively pumping, we're kind of shooting for about 25 to 30 ounces a day. For especially like after six weeks. Yeah. After six yeah. weeks for a baby. Um, So 25 ounces is like the average. So if you're at 21, I mean, my God. And that's before incredible. your baby's born. Yes. That's really significant. Yes. I was so excited by that. And I, this time around, I had a completely different experience on the medication, the Domperidone. Uh Um, There's updated information in the book, Breastfeeding Without Birthing, about starting the Domperidone earlier, um, even Mm. along with the birth control. Six years ago, you were told to stop the birth control and start the Domperidone. Now it's you start the Domperidone earlier. And you even wake up the breasts is how she puts it it, before you start (laughs) pumping. And so maybe for a few weeks before you start pumping, you hand express. You don't save that. It's Mm going to be drops, but it sort of wakes them up before you throw a pump on them. And so I did both of those things as well. And maybe that helped. Nice. Um, But yeah, I was was super excited by that amount. Yes. Yeah. We will make sure to link that book, Breastfeeding Without Birthing, um, in our show notes for anybody who wants a very good read about this. Yeah. So awesome. You had a really different second experience. So now there's a transition point, right, between exclusive pumping, no baby, to suddenly you have a newborn. Yes. (laughs) Uh, What do you do? How does that transition work? Um, Did you directly feed both pumped milk? What's going on there? Yeah. So for both of them, we were present for birth. The first was in a hospital and um, they put him directly on me. I sat in like the dad recliner chair, basically, and they put him directly on me and he latched within an hour or so. Um, And the second time it was a home birth and I caught him and then he (laughs) it was beautiful. (laughs) Um, And then he wouldn't latch for quite a while. He wouldn't latch me. I mean, not a long time, but maybe an hour and a half. He took a little bit longer to latch. He was just so chill. <laughs> Not in a hurry. Was he a water, he a water birth? Uh, almost. We were so close. <laughs> she stepped out to go to, to try to walk around and he fell out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So close to a water birth. Um, that sounds but lovely. There is, yeah, there is a definite transition because I was making, in both instances, way more milk than an, a newborn can take. And so I would Well, with our first son, I nursed and then I would pump or I would pump on one side while he was nursing for a few Mm -hmm. weeks because he couldn't take as much as I was making and I didn't want to lose that supply. I wanted to keep that up since I worked so hard for it. The second time around, I actually had a very fast, hard letdown this time. And so I was Mm -hmm. choking him and drowning him. So I had to pump before I nursed for a while um, to sort of help him with that. Yeah, that's just incredible. So how much did you actually have in your freezer at the time of the birth? Yeah, this time around, I had 900 ounces. I was trying so hard to get to a thousand. (laughs) (laughs) So you didn't have to supplement with formula then, did you? Oh, no. And I am now able to exclusively nurse him. After a few weeks uh, for my own mental health, I wanted to supplement. Um, uh, I couldn't. I get touched out pretty easily. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, and so I needed a break in the evenings when he was, I would let him cluster feed for like an hour. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. And give him to it's my like a boundary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good to know that. Yes, exactly. And so I don't think I probably needed to supplement, but it was for my own sanity at that time. Um, and I supplemented, but then he's refused a bottle after a few weeks. <laughs> Great. <laughs> he was like, wait, I have a choice. I'm choosing. <laughs> he's like warm, squishy nipple, uh, mom's heartbeat. Yes. yes. Thank you. And so since you know, then, yeah, I've just been exclusively nursing him, yeah. which is okay. an amazing feeling that I never thought I would get that. I didn't know how important that was to me. And I know it shouldn't be important, yeah. but it felt really important to me. It's okay that that's important. I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm mostly concerned that the government is going to hear this episode and be like, wait, someone that didn't physically have a baby made 900 ounces? Dollar sign, dollar sign, oh formula shortage. You don't need to Suddenly Dom Peridone is accessible to anyone at Walgreens. Please, everybody, go, you know, who knows what's going to happen, you guys? Who knows? Yeah. I have, well, been, <laughs> I have been trying to talk myself into donating some of that milk, but it's Ugh, so, it it's is, hard. yes, it is so tied to me in this experience, mm-hmm. but I think I am going to donate some here shortly. I just feel really yeah. guilty for having, an, um, you know, it's though, probably about 700 ounces left. It's okay kind of either way. And I, I like, I fully sympathize with the fear where you're like, well, what if I give it away and then I need it? Like, what if that happens immediately? And you know what? I tell people when they're considering this, I'm like, start with a quantity where you still feel safe. Mm. Like, if you give 50 ounces the first time, then that's what you give, you know, and see how it goes. Yeah. Because milk has a long shelf life. Right. You know, and even even if you're donating to a milk bank, that's still pretty long. So it's okay to take it slow, to take little baby steps. <laughs> it's also just, okay yeah. just not to donate yeah. it. Yeah. And to do you know, just hang on to it. That's part of you. Literally. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nobody's business. You know, we just did a formula shortage and relactation episode yes. uh not too long ago and we wanted to make sure that that was something that really came through because with the formula shortage, there's been so much pressure on people that have milk in their freezers to donate it. And it's like, wait, 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 that's yours. You don't have to if you don't want to. It's it's really okay. Mm. It is not your responsibility to save the entire world. You From just a do global what... crisis. That, right. Yeah. It's like, as much as I would love it if boobs could solve global crises, um, they they can't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I'm I'm really really proud of you and I'm so glad that you're willing to come talk about your story because I know so many people out there are for the first time ever listening to this episode thinking, "Oh my gosh, could I do that?" That's awesome. Yeah, I love it's definitely like a party story of mine. Um and it's sort of like the meet the fuckers like, "Can you milk me, Greg?" and I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> oh my god. You can milk anything with teeth walker. <laughs> oh my gosh. So let's talk about expectations though. Because, you know, when you start a journey like this, I'm sure you have some seeds of doubt that are sown by providers, family members. I mean, did you have support of the community around you or were you worried? Like, were your expectations a little bit low in the beginning? And then how did those change? You know, as you said, you were reevaluating your goals. Like, how did those change over time? Um, I usually don't 
take no or take crap from a lot of doctors. I've learned to be my own medical advocate since right. the age of 14. I really needed to step up and do that. Um, unfortunately, our RE, our reproductive endocrinologist, our IVF doctor is who I went to. And she was very vocally concerned I would starve my baby. And I had hmm. to explain to her, I do not plan on starving a baby I just paid a lot for. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I love yeah. him. And this was a long process. You think I want to starve him? Like, no, who would do that? Um, yeah. And so once I told her I was more than willing to supplement, she was willing to work with me um, of getting the birth control and other um, medications mm -hmm. that I needed. After the fact, I did email her and let her know. And she said, wow, I've never heard of anyone being successful. I was like, well, now you have. Wow. Yeah. Well, oh, now you so have. And then you dropped up. your mic and you walked away. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. Exactly. It's important because a lot of healthcare providers, like, you know, their education on this is a five minutes of a class where somebody's like, a fun case study you should look at. And that's it, you know, and, and it, unfortunately, it does end up kind of being our responsibility to educate them on our, like, unique bodies and situations and experiences. Definitely. I feel like I felt this way, and I know a lot of people feel this way. You you almost do this in private. So you can sometimes get help from an IBCLC, but a lot don't know about it. Or... Mm -hmm. um, or you don't have one locally that has the experience. And so sometimes you're just doing it on your own or you go to a Facebook group and get maybe some good or maybe some bad advice. Um, and I'm really thankful that I was able to meet in person Alyssa Schnell, the author of the Breastfeeding Without Birthing book, and got to work with her through video calls through mm. with the journeys, both of them, um, and was able to bounce ideas off of her. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't getting the support that they need and are reaching out in places maybe that aren't the best places. <laughs> yeah. Um, so hopefully That's more IBCLCs get information about it as well or midwives, OBs, everyone. You know, I'm I'm wondering, have you had people that have had fertility issues reach out to you like prior to doing another round of IVF or, um, you know, Clomid treatments and they never recommend breastfeeding when you're doing medications like Clomid? Um you know, they're like, are you sure you want to screw up the potential expensive process that you're about to go through by breastfeeding? And, you know, I I come from a place where there's always a middle ground. But have you heard from any of that group of people about how to possibly get ahead of it prior to fertility treatments? Hmm. So in my circles of the same condition, uh, intersex condition that I have, there's no trying. Generally, it's just straight to IVF mm -hmm. and um, gestational carrier most clinics won't approve you to move forward if your prolactin level's high, and they know that um, by testing. Even if you say you're not nursing, they'll figure that out. Um, and right. so, no, personally, I have not experienced that um, asking for advice, but I know, I know there's plenty of people out there. I think with everything, like you said, it's the middle ground. You have to weigh your mental health and your experience and what you want out of it um, with the risks that might come along with that. Yeah. Right. And then time, you know, time is kind of not the friend of all people who are in childbearing business. You know, it's like the the perpetual thing hanging over our heads, right? <laughs> Where it's like time and money. You know, if you've got all the time and all the money in the world, then you've got no worries. Like we could just find this middle ground for the next 10 to 15 years and just continually work on it. But did you feel a lot of pressure with time to figure this out? 
to figure out how to do this? Yeah, to figure out how to do it. And, you know, for other intersex people that maybe do have um, uteruses that would like to carry the baby, um, you know, if they're 35, 40, 45, where they're ready to start the process, has that been something that's come up in your community? Um, So knowing when to start inducing lactation is a big deal. A lot of people don't find out about it until they're 30 weeks in gestation and it's, Mm -hmm. um, they just need to change their expectations. They may not get a full supply as fast as someone who has a 30 week head start. Uh, The other question of like when to make a baby, how old and things like that. Um, the uterus doesn't age very well, uh, very quickly. And so many people with my condition, their mothers carry for them. Um, and so 50, 60 year old women can, if it's not their egg, um, can carry for their own children. And so finding when it's right for you, just like someone who's carrying and birthing their own child, there's probably never a right time. (laughs) There's never a good time. (laughs) Um, and it's whenever you, and it's so expensive too. So once you're financially stable, um, and have enough money available to you to do this, that's the right time. Yeah, that's oh, good advice. Man. I would totally carry a baby for my daughter. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think we'll let her yeah. know. <laughs> sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not good. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine a lot of complicated Whoa. interpersonal stuff with that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really cool. And I, the whole process, I'm sure, just brings up a lot of tough discussions. You know, with everybody, just you have to have experienced communicators around you to make sure everything gets ironed out and that nobody says anything to you that's really hurtful or harmful. Um, And if they do, how to recover from that and make sure everybody's still on the same page. Definitely. Um, I feel like surrogacy is almost like dating someone. (laughs) When you try to find a match, it's almost like you put a dating profile out there and see if anyone wants to date you. And then you take them on dates and see if you get along. Um, And then it's almost like a babysitter that you hire. That's really extreme. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That they have your kid, not for overnight, but nine months. Um, And it is really important uh, open communication. Um, I am extremely direct, probably too direct. Mm -hmm. And I was very upfront with that. Like I'm a direct person. I'm an over communicator. Please tell me every single thing. Did he kick today? I want to know. Did you have gas today? I want to (laughs) know. Um, but as you get closer to birth, um, even for people I'm sure who are birthing their own child, the, the feelings intensify. The stress intensifies. Um, And both times there were definitely conversations in the days leading up to the labor or to birth where um, you do have to sort of walk on eggshells a little bit because it's a really Mm -hmm. tense situation. You don't want to make the person mad who's birthing your kid and they then say you can't be in the room. They have that right. right. And so it's sort of a very fine ballet dance that you do between all of the parties involved. Oh, man. Yeah. My friend Christy has been a surrogate three times and she has two biological children of her own. And um, every time has been completely different. And she births really quickly. And the last one, the parents missed it by like 35 seconds. And she's laying on the floor like that baby just came out so fast. She's laying on the floor and she says she looks back towards the door and she goes, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
I tried. <laughs> and, you know, it was like A for effort. They were like, we get it. Thanks for having the baby. Like, just so appreciate you birthing a whole human for us. <laughs> cool. That does happen, though, because a lot of people, their surrogates don't yeah. live in their same state. Both times we mm. were lucky enough, it was something very important to us that they live within driving distance. That was right. on our match criteria. And so both times we were able to make the birth. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I want to kind of round out our discussion a little bit and just, I like to give people realistic expectations, right? I feel like we actually have better chances of success <laughs> when we know what the hard parts are. So if you had to choose one thing, what do you think the hardest part of the process of inducing lactation is? Oh, the hardest part. Um, I mean, definitely finding the time to pump and making it a priority. It's a supply and demand thing. And if you don't demand it from your body, you're not going to you're not going to get it. Mm -hmm. And while it sucks to have to wake up in the middle of the night, it's sort of just preparing you for a newborn um, <laughs> and finding the time to pump. That's that's yeah. definitely the hardest, hardest part. Well, you know, before there's a baby there, doesn't that just fall into the category of all the other things we don't do for ourselves that we should schedule <laughs> in throughout the day? You know, yes. I'm trying to get better about that. And like the closest I've come is a massage every two weeks, which is non-negotiable. And I'm almost aggressive about it with people when they try to <laughs> schedule during my massage time. I'm like, you know, this is the one thing I do every two weeks. It's only an hour, non-negotiable. And they're like, it's fine, Heather, God. And I'm like, you don't understand. I'm really bad about making time for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I believe you. Yes. I think that would be my biggest issue, too. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of times, too, once the baby's here, you're you may still have the same issues that any birthing parent would have. It's not like you did all of this work and now it's going to be easy. You're now mm -hmm. dealing with the usual stuff <laughs> that birthing right. parents that birthing parents would have to deal with. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Well, Chrissy. This has been lovely and illuminating and inspiring. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, we would love for our listeners who would like to learn more to be able to find you. So can you tell us where they can find you and learn more? Great. Um, yeah. So I am usually on TikTok. My username or handle is Oceans of Hope. It comes from a Dracula quote. Our first son is Bram. That's his name. Bram Aww. Stoker. And um, yeah. he says, I've crossed oceans of time to find you. And so we always say we've crossed oceans of hope to find him. Um, so yeah, I post a lot on TikTok about all of this. There is also a fantastic Facebook group that I was part of. I was a La Leche League leader for five years, which is a peer counselor. And we created this group on Facebook that's inducing lactation and relactation. And there's tons of great information and support people in there. So you can find oh, me yes. there as I'm well. I'm glad you like it because I recommend that group to a lot of people. <laughs> and I I like I joined just to watch. Yes. So I was like, I need to make sure this is okay. Right. <laughs> this there, group is yes, good. There are several yeah. groups. This one is one of the few that's moderated by yes. somewhat professionals. We're volunteers, but yeah. well, actually like leaders who sort of know. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. And we will link those in the show notes as well, just so people can do a one click yeah. find you very easy. Great. All right. Well, <sighs> any parting thoughts for our for our people here? Ooh, um, hmm, parting thoughts. Anything is possible. Like anything, you don't know what you don't know. Like anything is possible. A lot of people didn't know that you could make milk and not be birth, not birth. A lot of people didn't know you could be born without a uterus. Like expand your mind that you don't know everything that's out there. 
Love that. Yeah. And although we love to make things binary and put people into categories and groups and it's either we're breastfeeding or formula feeding or we birth the baby or we can't birth the baby, it just doesn't work like that, guys. Not at all. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Well, thank you, Chrissy, so much. We really appreciate your time today. And thank you for inspiring all of our Milk Minute listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. This This has been great. Thank you. Heather, have I told you about my new favorite place to get nursing bras? Oh, tell me. It's called the Dairy Fairy. The Dairy Fairy offers bras and tanks that try to solve the challenges that come with nursing and pumping. Their ingenious intimates are beautiful, supportive, and can be worn all day long. Oh, you're allowed to look good and feel good about yourself while wearing a nursing bra? Absolutely. And they offer sizes up to a 52G. Oh, amazing. I'm so glad a company has finally realized that a D cup is not a large. Absolutely. And I, it's so affirming to feel included in sizing and not feel like I'm asking for too much that clothing fits my body. Well, what else do we get? Well, if you guys follow the link in our show notes, you can use the code MILKMINUTE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic orders. Oh, thank you so much, Dairy Fairy. Absolutely. Once again, that's the link in our show notes and use the code MILKMINUTE for free shipping on all domestic orders. So I learned a lot. Yeah, I, oh man, I knew Chrissy would be great to have on the podcast and I'm so happy she was. Well, here's what's funny. I did not actually realize that people with two uteruses were considered intersex. I think most people with two uteri uh, also don't realize that because basically like years ago when we were when we used the word intersex, it was like, okay, you're sort of in between male and female. And now they're realizing like, oh, actually, like probably all of these interesting uh, expressions of sex that are not quite the norm maybe should be kind of grouped together. Right. And also maybe it goes beyond ambiguous external genitalia. Yes. Maybe inside matters too. Well, and I think that's like there is a statistic. It used to be like, oh, 2% of people are intersex because they essentially just diagnosed it based on like external genitalia. And now it's the estimate is closer to 5%. For reference, uh, we have less redheads in the world, (laughs) you know, so it's actually like we're realizing much more common than we thought. And like Chrissy said, that kind of sucks because those people that are intersex but maybe don't Mm -hmm. know it or don't identify it because providers aren't trained to be like, oh, by the way, you're intersex and it's fine. And here's a community for you. Here's how to connect with other people. Yeah. And here's instead of being like, and here's the limits that you have because of this condition. It's like, okay, and here's the possibilities. Right. And then we've got someone we can point to like Chrissy, who's got this incredible story where it's like, yeah, you're intersex. So is Chrissy. Look at all. She's got 900 ounces in the freezer and like she's feeding her babies and she has two of them and she has a husband. You know, she's married and they're happy. and Right. Has a happy, amazing life. Right. And she's working and she's. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's great. I I love her handle Oceans of Hope. Yeah, me too. Oh, my God. (laughs) So sweet. Yeah. Um, So I hope this is inspiring to you and um, just really makes you like believe in your body a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, for people that maybe 
feel like their body has let them down their whole life in one way or another. Maybe it just didn't even look the way you wanted it to look. Or maybe you had horrific periods and it was debilitating for you mm-hmm. or, you know, who, whatever. And then you go to have a baby and you're like, oh, and my body's going to let me down here too. Big surprise. What if it doesn't? Right. What if your body shows up for you? You know, what if it's not all or nothing, like she said? So don't be afraid to dig in and find out what you don't know about yourself and let us know if you need anything along the way. And yeah. go follow Chrissy, please. <laughs> Definitely. Well, um, let's see ourselves out with an award. Yes, let's. I've got a good one today. Today's award goes to Brittany from Northern Indiana. She says, we just got to one year of breastfeeding with 10 exclamation points. Woohoo! We worked so hard. Tongue tie, lazy latch, adjust enough for COVID, parentheses, both of us, postpartum OCD, anxiety, and so much more. But we did it. Can't even believe it. I'm so proud. Uh, we are also super proud of you. And I think today we are going to give you the year of plenty award because you know what? Just enough is plenty, girl. It is plenty. Just enough is enough. Yeah. A year of plenty award for you, Brittany. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Milk Minute Podcast. The way we change this big system that is not set up to support breastfeeding is by educating ourselves and others and sharing the resources we have. If you would like more of us and all of the stuff we do and talk about, but you want it in a more raw, direct way without a filter, you can find us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. Your donation goes directly to creating a more sustainable podcast for us. Things like paying our editor and soundproofing and the sweet little headphones that Maureen has on her head. So Yeah, we actually have an amazing team behind the Milk Minute, our editor, Cherie. And then I don't even know what we're going to... What is Tiffany? She does everything else. I think she's else. actually a producer. Uh, yeah, Tiffany's a producer. So, guys, like we have these two incredible people who we pay to help us with the podcast because we can't do everything as much as I think both of us think we can. We can't. So thank God for Cherie and Tiffany. And it's super helpful if you can contribute a little bit to paying them, sustaining them in all that they're wonderful stuff and just helping us make a better production. Yeah. So if you found value in what we've produced for you today, you can give us some love back with a donation on Patreon and we will give you behind the scenes access and maybe even some merch and live Q&A's. All right. Well, we will see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. It's a new-